This is Glenn Crooks on Frame. At the United Soccer Coaches Convention, the largest gathering of coaches in the world, On Frame was part of Podcast Row, set up at one of the entrances at the Baltimore Convention Center. Some of the interviews were scheduled, some just securing guests as they walked by or said hello. Uh, ahead on this episode, we'll have Bo Dur. He is the author of Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. Then there's Elise LeHue has led the resurgence of Sky Blue FC. The uh, general manager spoke to me the day after the NWSL draft, where Sky Blue acquired Mallory Pugh to play alongside Carly Lloyd. Yael Averbush, former pro player, now executive director of the NWSL PA. We'll talk to her. And Alan Chapman, the MLS referee of the year in 2019, 27 matches in the middle and others as a video assistant referee. So the VAR, one of my favorite things at the convention, the pro referees booth in the exhibit hall where I could play the role of VAR, and that's where I met Alan. So here's what I learned. Well, it's, it, it was, I had to decide if it was clear and obvious. Correct. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> what's the, the definition of that is sometimes blurred, but... What's clear and obvious for you may be cl- not clear and obvious for me. So it's well, that's where it gets crazy yeah. because we're tr- we're in a way we're trying to take some of the human element out of it and just just the scientists telling us this is a goal, it's not a goal. Thing, but in in truth, that's not the case. There's yeah, still there's, that subjectivity. Exactly. When you know, obviously, there's areas for improvement. There's training that we go through to try to clarify what is clear and obvious. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's very interesting. I think we've done a great job at MLS level as far as implementing it and being the driver as far as the leagues, as far as implementing it in our league. You know, uh, yeah. the other leagues kind of climbed on board after we got into it. So. Well, I know EPL contacted MLS and Pro and yeah. just to decide, you know, see if they could, you know, get some help. And it seems like they need some help uh, <laughs> presently. And clear and obvious as again, there's two things. It's clear and obvious, which is defined. I, I went on the EPL website. It's defined very clearly, you know, that this is a big part of their decision process as, as to whether to, to, uh, to overrule a call or not. But we also see that the uh, the referee is not going to the monitor to the extent that maybe, well, certainly not to the extent that uh, it happens in MLS. So how yeah. do you read both of those things? Well, uh, according to IFAB and FIFA, you know, the referee still on the, on the day should have the final say. And that's where we're different from the English Premier League. Um, English is getting the information from the video assistant referee and, you know, basing that on the information they're getting and saying, okay, we'll accept right. that. We're, uh, we're kind of following protocol. And IFAB has called the EPL out on it yeah, you know, recently. They have, right. But, you know, when it, first, when it was first born, I thought to myself, I said, it's video assistant referee. So that's a referee upstairs Correct. who has all these monitors, all these looks. And my, my initial feeling, and this was about uh, the fluidity of the game and, and getting through this as quickly as possible, is let that guy make the call up there or a girl. Mm-hmm. You know? but, um, but, so why is it important that the referee makes the final decision? Well, you have very uh, different views sometimes. There is that subjectivity on a penalty decision, particularly, you know, is it a foul? Is it enough? You know, contact, you know, is that that, uh, contact really impacting the play? 
Um, when it comes to factual, you know, offside, not offside, I can understand that being, you know, just uh, relayed down to you. Goal, no goal. Did it cross the line or, 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 or didn't, you know? Why would do referees need to go look at that? Um, but we found here in MLS it's better to sell the decision to the, the fans that the referee has gone and looked at, you know, Yes, it may delay the game a little bit, but uh, generally those factuals, we go and it's a pretty quick view of the the, um, the monitor to see if it's a goal or not a goal or offside or not offside. So it's it's uh, obviously it's changing. You know, we try to adapt to what maybe the league wants, what you know the fans are kind of. Um, communicating as well. So well, one of the things that fans want, and I think even me up in the booth, is to maybe have a little bit more clarity as to what's going on right. during these yeah. situations. And now we see. Yeah. So in the EPL, they they up on the board, right. they they just put up there what's being checked, and and they're pretty you know they're pretty specific about what it is. So at least everybody knows what's going on. Are there any discussions about? Transparency is the wrong word, but but giving more information out. Right. You know, there uh, is at the, at there the is discussions for sure. I think broadcast on TV, they, they have maybe the same views that we are seeing, but not in stadiums. So I know there are talks going on as far as trying to make it a little bit more uh, visible to, especially in stadium. Um, obviously, you got security issues there that, uh, you know, that we have to make sure that we're protecting um, the officials, the players on the field, because if you see something... You know that maybe they shouldn't have seen. It could cause a little chaos in the. In well, the there was stand. an example when I when I did my VAR session today. There were one of the uh, situations. I can't recall one game, but Alan Kelly was in the middle, and uh, uh, I was later told that, uh, uh, and I, I said it was clear and obvious that he didn't need to go to the monitor. That was my call. But the reason he went to the monitor is apparently the replay was shown on the um, on the big board, Correct. and the crowd was starting to get restless. Yeah. So he was trying to maybe take the air out of the crowd a little bit. Is that correct? Correct. It was spot on. You know, that's that's. Uh, have you been in that situation? I have before? yet to be in that situation, but I thought he did a great job of trying to um, control the the situation a little bit there. So. What's yeah. your background personally? How did you get to this point? Why a referee? I mean, were you a player or a coach? What interested you in the game and how'd you do this? You're smiling. Though. <laughs> I, I am. You have a good story? I, I like to think it's a good story. Right. Uh, so, yes, I was a player and a coach. I uh, didn't start refereeing until I was 30. Oh. Uh, very passionate player and coach. Uh, referees didn't like me. Where did you play? Where did you coach? So, uh, I started New Mexico as my youth background. Oh. Uh, and then I played collegiately at uh, Fort Lewis in Durango, Colorado, Division Two. Ended up playing USLD three at the time in uh, Albuquerque. It was Albuquerque Geckos. Nice. And then went and played a PDL season up in Northern Arizona Prospectors, and then played uh, a few years at Arizona Saguaros, another USLD midfielder. I played all over. I was midfield, uh, ver- defender. Yeah, very versatile. Not. And never in goal, never really up top, but very versatile player. Well, I'm going to suggest, and I had this discussion with somebody earlier today in regard to players becoming referees. Oh, and we need, uh, we need so many more of those. I'm just right, saying. and but you have a feel for the game, so mm-hmm. and congratulations being named a referee of the Thank year. You. It's Thank a big you. honor, but it's well-deserved. I think 
you know, when we because we talk about the referees, yeah. my colleagues and I, and you know, you you have the reputation to be very consistent, mm-hmm. which is a, a, a an important word for referees as well. Correct. But player to referee, I mean, that that helps you obviously. It did. It uh, you know, it, you you can have you have a feel for the game. You can read the place. So you know where you need to be to make a decision. Um, you understand the emotion. You understand players' emotion. Where you need to, you know, get involved and when you need to step back and just referee the game. So um, tactically, you know what's happening a little bit better than someone that may not have that 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 knowledge. Yeah. So um, that's for me. It really helped me climb the ladder really quick. You know, by the by the time I was 36, started at refereeing at 30. By the time 36, I was doing the women's professionally, the WPS. And then the year later, I was in the in the MLS as a fourth official. So Fantastic. Now, although, there's some interesting parts of your job to me is that you start, I'm sure, developing re- relationships with the players. You get to know them. You know, they're in the league for several years. They know you. Right. Uh, but now, and now the league, uh, I don't know if you speak Spanish, but now the league, uh, there's such a Latin influence now. A lot of a lot of players coming up from South America, and uh, the communication between you and a player, how, how vital is that? And this is an education show, and this is an education moment to me, right. because that seems to be. There's a fine line there as to how much to talk, right. leave it go. What do you think? Well, uh, obviously, the soccer is universal, um, and I think refereeing is the same. We can use a lot of different tools to communicate with, with the la- language barrier, and that's our whistle, that's our body language, that's eye contact. There's a lot of different, and there's <laughs> obviously the yellow and red card um, <laughs> are tools that we have. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, but we also have teammates, that we try to use if we can't communicate, if they're trying to communicate something to me or vice versa. Okay. We try to use two minutes that we know can translate right. or help. So what do you think about this? I'm, I am so, uh, I'm so bugged by the following and it seemed like there was a, a point of emphasis to eliminate it or, or limit it. But the gathering of players around the referee oh. after calls. And I, I want to know how much that is, uh, how, how difficult that is for you at those moments. I have a solution. I want, I want and I don't know if you've, I, I would be curious as to how you've approached this as, as referees, but it, the captain can speak to you. And if anybody as much as approaches you, boom, here, I got my yellow card here. Mm-hmm. There it is. Boom. Right. Mm-hmm. And if, if you know you're going to get booked, just by talking to the referee, if you're not the captain, it'll stop, won't it? I would like to think so. Uh, it's something that we've definitely had discussions about at our meetings as far as points of emphasis is, uh, sorry, <laughs> points of emphasis going forward for next year and beyond. It's uh, got to end because yeah, what happens it, is kids are watching right, games, exactly. but this is all over the world. Yeah. You know, and they just, just it's, yeah. and it's. It's a lot of calls, it spreads obvious calls. Yeah. Uh, it just it just happens. Yeah, they uh, you know with video review it, it's helpful because the big decisions it's really easy to communicate to them. Hey, it's going to be checked. You know, yeah. so there are those moments where we use that and say, look, everything's being checked. You know, you can relax. You know, uh, you but I remember when you first added VAR is in the middle of uh, which which MLS season? Eighteen. Uh, um, middle, of how, middle of 17. Middle of 17. Yeah. So if a player went like this, and what I'm doing now, we're on the radio, but making the uh, sign of a monitor, you were supposed to book them right, right. out. Yeah. But, that, but that doesn't happen all no, the time. No, it doesn't. It, obviously, we were looking for the 
really uh, dramatic. Egregious. Yeah. yeah. All right. So if it's just a brief, we're not going to. But that's wanna... still disrespectful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, I think, I don't know where it's gone as far as our discussions with the league. And obviously we, we get uh, the coaches' feedback. Uh, there's a committee there that kind of looks at uh, the game and how it wants to be officiated here in, in the MLS. Um, but I agree with you. It, it needs to stop. Um, it, it does, you know, bleed down into the youth level. Um, Absolutely. It's, it, it, it may come to just, you know, a coach previous years also, we were giving yellow cards for kicking the ball away, right? Oh, right, right. Delaying yeah. the restart was huge the last right, couple of years. Right. Kicking the ball, that's a yellow card, you know? It's a stupid yellow so, for them. Yeah. yeah, and if we did this, you know, I think that could impact the future of the game and and players will let's let's move on let's 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 play let's uh the pe- spectators don't come to watch you argue with the referee they want to see you play on the field they want to see your, your skills and yeah and let's let's go on, let's get on with it you know so all right final thoughts okay and you're not going to answer this but i'm going to ask you anyway <laughs> who's the chirpiest coach come on come on in mls <sighs> the chirpiest yeah, jesse I marsh is careful. gone now so i gotta be careful well, well you could say Jesse Marsh was because yeah. he's out of here. All right, I'll let you go. Yeah, I appreciate that. that. But, uh, <laughs> but there me. are some more than others, right? Exactly. I mean, you know what you're getting when yep. you're coming in sometimes. Yep. It, it uh, with relationships, we talk about relationships. It develops over time. Obviously, some uh, just don't see eye to eye with certain referees, and we have to live with that. So um, that's that's the part of refereeing. So. Well, Alan, uh, it's certainly a pleasure to, to sit with you for a few minutes, and I yeah. thank you so much. I know your your duties were over at 4 o'clock over yeah, at the fun. booth, and uh, Plenty of you hung out and uh, got a chance to talk I to you about VAR. It. We learned a lot today. I, I hope so. Yeah. I'm here to educate. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Alan. All right, thank you. All right, we'll see you at Yankee Stadium someday soon. All, All right, sounds good. A chance to show that referees are human, too, at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. Women's soccer, well represented as well in Baltimore. And I invited the Sky Blue FC general manager to discuss the draft, the club, and the NWSL and more with me uh, on the convention floor. So we're uh, here on Podcast Row with Elise LaHue, the general manager of Sky Blue FC. And uh, it's the day after what was a, a fairly monumental day for the club and WSL draft. You had all these uh, attractive selections, number two, number three, but you ended up trading them away, but for what appears to be a very good cause. Mallory Pugh is now going to be playing in New Jersey. So mm-hmm. just tell us about how that maybe as much as you can, how that all took place. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Glenn. Uh, obviously coming off of a really big day for us yesterday. Uh, uh, feeling uh, feeling the weight of this week. It's been a long week, a lot of trade discussions, as you know. This was a really interesting draft for the league in that it was obviously incredibly talented, but I think it really came down to team needs. So there was no obvious, you know, number one through ten on, on who those players could be, outside of the expectation that we kind of knew who number one was going to be. And us coming in at the 2-3 spot, um, you know, we actually didn't move the the two three to get Pew. We had we had already traded those when that conversation came back alive. Ah, okay. uh, it all happened very fast. Um, I think from a media perspective, um, and a lot was going on behind the scenes. But um, we're absolutely thrilled with how the day turned out. Evelyn Vienne, the top player that we drafted, 
she was our target from the beginning. To be honest, we would have taken her with the number two pick, um, just as we did with the number five. Um, so it worked out fantastic for us. Um, and then obviously getting Mal Pugh on, on top of it, as well as three other draftees and allocation money, I'd say it was a pretty good day for Sky Blue. So the allocation money, that's uh, something to be discussed at this point because that's brand new to the league. Can you describe, uh, and the one thing, and this is just from a standpoint, I, I would like to see figures, and I see that there are no figures really being shared, but tell us how it, uh, how it came about and then what it actually means to each club. Yeah, so as part of what, what the Board of Governors is calling NWSL 2.0 is this new salary and incentive structure for players, um, new minimum requirements on, on housing as well, um, which is really tremendous. It adds a lot to player contracts. Uh, part of our increased salary cap is also an additional 300000 in allocation money that we're able to utilize. Now, it can't be used on any player. A player has to meet a certain uh, list of requirements uh, to be eligible for allocation money into that 300000 pool, and it can only be used if you're going above the league max of $50,000. Do you find that restrictive in terms of your search for players? I mean, what's your, what's your take on it? Not particularly. I think 300000 is a lot to use in the marketplace right now. And, and but what kind of criteria do the players have to fit into? No, it's, uh, you know, having uh, international experience. Uh, if you're an international player, you qualify for it. Um, right. If you're an American player, there's maybe a set number of years having played professionally. Okay. If you've played for your national team for a set number of caps, uh, um, to be honest, I can't even recall all the criteria. It's pretty deep, and yeah. you have to meet just a certain number of them. So um, there's quite a few players that would qualify for additional uh, money beyond the 50000 under this new model. So uh, that's a, a positive step, obviously, because you're, uh, you're, you're able to go out and maybe get that international player when you weren't before. But the club still has to put out the cash. So that's I've not always a guarantee either, right? Right. It's not mandatory to use the 300000 It's at the club's discretion. So, right. you know, I've heard from some teams, oh, I, I don't have access to the 300000 Other teams I've heard, oh, I've got 300000 to play with this year as if it's, you know, monopoly money. Um, it, <laughs> well, how you know, about Sky Blue FC? Where do you fit into that discussion? Our owners are absolutely willing to allow uh, both myself and head coach Freya Coombe the opportunity to go out and, and try to obtain the best players for us. Obviously, Sky Blue... Uh, we've been in a rebuilding phase as a club um, off the field. Um, you know, coming off of last year in the draft, we weren't able to bring in all the players that, that the club had selected. Um, this year coming in, we, we don't feel that way, um, although it's important for us to make sure that we're bringing in players of, of high character, both on and off the field, that, that want to play for Sky Blue and want to be a part of this club. We have a big vision for where we want to go. You know, we went from ninth place to eighth place last year and made some improvements, but, you know, seventh place isn't the goal next year. We want to get into the playoffs, and with that, you've got to make some pretty big decisions and some pretty big roster moves. So I think if we are able to obtain the, the right players that are going to push us forward, I absolutely have access to um, using those funds in a meaningful way. So I want to go back to Pew for a moment because uh – I've known Richie Burke a long time, and I had a, a pretty long discussion with him on the record. It was uh, for an interview, but he was, uh, you know, as the head coach of that team, he was uh, rather distressed that he lost Mal Pugh. I don't. It, it sounded to me very much like uh, that would, was not his decision. Uh, he even told Freya. Uh, he told me. He told Freya the night before, and I'm sure you're privy to this. Is that uh, she's not? We're, we're not. 
you're not getting her, you know, to something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So things do change and happen in uh, short periods of time. I mean, exactly when was that consummated? Is it after the draft had started or, uh, or, or a little before? Yeah, I can't remember the exact timing. I I was running around the draft room in the middle of multiple trades and trying to get well, paperwork done. Well, that's the best part of observing. And, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's uh, like going from table to table. You see people, little offside chats, and uh, probably looks like a chicken coop with us just running around. <laughs> uh, I I think I loosely heard them announce the draft was starting, and I was still up talking about another trade and going, "Oh shoot, it's eleven o'clock. <laughs> you know, it's go time. We've got to get this done." So um, it was an absolutely wild draft, probably. The, the craziest one that I've ever been through just in terms of the magnitude of the trades that were happening, the timing of them, um, and, and certainly when you include a, a U.S. Women's National Team player into that mix, it's a, it's a pretty big announcement. Tell us about Mal Pugh. I mean, she's someone that uh, those who follow the game on the women's side are, are very familiar with. Uh, where is she going to fit in and what are the qualities that uh, excite you about her? Yeah, I think the first thing is that we only have you know one U.S. Women's National Team player. I think if you're only going to have one, it's great to have Carly Lloyd as, as your one. Um, but we know she's later in her career right now. Um, I'm thrilled that she's with Sky Blue. I know she's going to end her career with us, and I'm excited for that. And at the rate she's going, it still might be another five or seven years off. She's absolutely f phenomenal. You know, she's like the bionic woman out there. Um, so I have no doubt she's going to continue with us. Um, but she's been a great leader for this club on and off the field. Um, what we saw in, in Mal Pugh, and she certainly had been a target for us. We know we need a little more firepower up top. We want to be an exciting club that scores goal and goals and entertains the fans. So she was somebody that we had targeted and had reached out to the Spirit um, probably months ago to see if that was a discussion they were willing to have. Uh, you know, obviously that's a, that's a difficult decision to make for a club moving a player of, of that caliber. Um, you know, she's still only 21 years old. Um, so in her we saw the opportunity for a phenomenal tandem with Carly. You know, you have a player that's been two-time World Player of the Year sort of uh, later in her career, and then a player who's 21 with a, a lot of experience but really is only just beginning. I mean, she, Mal right now is at the age of players just coming out of college. So we see still tremendous upside in her. I, I don't think we've scratched the surface of what Mal Pugh can do. She, uh, one of the things Richie Burke also talked about is that yeah, we've lost her, and he was disappointed, but he felt very strongly that he probably would have a difficult time protecting her as expansion teams now come in. I, I, Louisville's definite. I guess Sacramento, uh, I mean, is that looking good? I mean, I, what can we say about Sacramento? I think the goal as a league was was to really try to get to 10 teams for 2020. Um, you know, obviously we're going to hold at nine for right now, but 2021 we were really looking to go to 12. The, the odd numbers are really difficult Yeah. Um, from a scheduling standpoint and a competition standpoint. Right. Um, so I think an even number is ideal. We obviously already have Louisville committed for next year. There's a slew of other teams that are on the table that are interested in, and beyond just the inquiry standpoint, they're genuinely interested, have had deep conversations with the league. You know, there, there's certainly the potential that we, we go to 12, which would mean, you know, three new teams coming in in 2021. That's a big number um, in terms of an expansion draft and how many players you could potentially lose from your team. It's pretty typical. You can only protect two U.S. Women's National it's Team two, players. Uh, that's the number I was going to ask. So yeah. you only have two now. So you wouldn't have, if it were one, then you, you know. Yeah, then we're, then we're going to be in trouble. Um, but to be fair, you've got other teams like a North Carolina and Chicago that have a slew of, of U.S. Women's right. National Team players on their roster um, that I think are probably at far more risk than we are right now. We're, we're in a pretty comfortable position and felt we were 
were in a place that um, we could bring on another player of that caliber. Um, but also, you know, we're in the New York City, New Jersey market. It's a it's a market that really needs um, stars and players with big potential. So again, we, we see that opportunity in, in bringing on another U.S. Women's National Team player with that level of experience and a known name, I think is really going to help us both on and off the field. Well, it, was, it was really only about a year ago where Sky Blue, uh, there, there was a lot of negative press and, and it's something that you uh, alluded to earlier in terms of uh, uh, minimum standards for housing, for instance, and that was one of the concerns. And certainly what uh, you've been able to accomplish in a short period of time is, is turn around some of those uh, negative vibes and, and put them in a positive way. What's What's been some of the critical factors? I, I, my impression is, is that you're, uh, you work a lot <laughs> um, and very active on social media. So you should follow at Elise LaHue because she's uh, She's very clever and uh, interesting, and uh, but go ahead. That was uh, the nicest things that have been said about me this week, Glenn. I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, it's at Alahue, so first initial, oh, last sorry name. Sorry about that. Yeah, <laughs> I just opened it up. There you are. Yeah, right. I, I try to s- stay active. I, I found social media to be an incredible tool for engaging with fans, which is really important to me. Um, so it, it's great to be able to interact, to answer questions, to banter. Um, I have a pretty dry sense of humor. Um, I don't know if it comes across quite on social media, but I think it's a fun space to to certainly interact with the fans in in that capacity so um, I've enjoyed having that opportunity and and to be transparent and to obviously give people insight into the club Um, I think that's something that fans of NWSL have been craving a little more communication and information and knowledge I'm happy to do that on the club level I think it was the only way I could approach this because this is a really big project I came in in April of 2019 into this interim general manager role. At the same time, uh, owner Tammy Murphy came on in a managing director role. So she and I have really been partners in this process. We knew we needed to make some pretty dramatic changes, but it started with turning over every rock and taking a fine tooth comb through the club and really seeing where are the areas for improvement? What do we need to do to not only catch up with the rest of the league, but then how can we look to take the next step? We don't want to just scrape by the minimum standards. We want to build a club that this community is really, really proud of. We want this team in this market, Sky Blue, in the New York, New Jersey area, should be a destination team, not just for players in the U.S., but international players as well. And we need to create that environment to make it that type of a destination for players and, again, a place that fans are really proud of. And you're moving to Red Bull Arena full-time, which uh, was a huge announcement for the club. Uh, you had great success uh, with a couple of games that you uh, scheduled there or rescheduled after the success of the World Cup. Now, the thing I think of is uh, I would imagine there's a certain minimum you need to maintain there in order to make it worthwhile. So is that your biggest challenge right now? Yeah, I, I, I tend to use the word opportunity instead of challenge. I'm, I'm excited right. about having... Uh... I would like to learn from you there. <laughs> I, I will, I'll switch it's, the it's word. It's okay. Um, I, I, I see every challenge as an opportunity. Uh, Red Bull Arena is obviously a a fantastic venue, one of the best, uh, you know, football-specific venues in the country. And for us to have the opportunity to play in there is is great, not just for Sky Blue players, but visiting team players as well. They they should be in that type of professional environment. Um, But from a fan perspective, we we love playing at Rutgers. It was a great space. Um, But for us, from a fan experience perspective, 
they're demanding professional standards. They want the, the concessions and the amenities and the video board and the right. excitement of now what they're used to a pro soccer game looking like, the electronic LEDs around the field. So that's something that Red Bull Arena is going to be able to give to us. And, you know, when we look at our break-even point, it's, it's not as high as one would expect in that environment. So uh, the break-even point is not a concerning number for me in that venue. It's really more to say, how, how big can we go? What, what average attendance can we get at Red Bull Arena? And we're certainly going to um, scrape and, and fight as a front office staff to make sure that we're making it as accessible as possible uh, for all fans, whether in New Jersey, New York, or beyond. We know we're the only team in the Northeast right now, so we embrace really all fans um, into this club, and, and we want people to, even if it's to come out to one game a year, if they have to drive a few hours from Connecticut, we want to make it a space where fans come in, they're excited about the experience, and they're telling other people and they want to come back again. And adding Mal Pugh is, uh, you know, certainly could uh, provide a bit of a boost there. Elise LeHue, general manager of Sky Blue SC, with with us. And I, I'm looking at one of your tweets. Uh, you, uh, we are at the convention uh, in Baltimore, and uh, you were a guest speaker at the uh, annual women's coaches breakfast. I saw this tweet from Coach Hirsch, uh, who. Uh, was talking about your message and then you retweeted and, and, and talked about how uh, is this your high school coach that tweeted this or you just kind of referred back to your high school coach yeah it was uh, it was actually the high school coaches breakfast I, I am on the women's advocacy committee oh, um, okay but this was actually the uh, high school coaches breakfast All so right. they, they invited me to come in and be a keynote speaker which was a tremendous honor um, so I spent a lot of time thinking back on what high school soccer meant for me um, I'm just a kid from Iowa, so I didn't have club soccer opportunities. Um, and to be honest, in our, in our current landscape, I'm not sure that my, my family would have been able to put me into that, to be fair. So high school soccer and my, my high school coach was the first person that really exposed me to what I call real soccer. So he actually had a skill level. He played college soccer. He knew the game very well. Um, and I played on the high school boys team. We didn't have enough girls to play. Um, <laughs> but, but my coach, Kurt, back then was the first person that really exposed me to, to real soccer. And also, uh, you know, I still remember the day he asked me if I was going to play college soccer, and I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know I could wow. play in college. Nobody had ever exposed me to that. I don't think my, my family was aware of that. I don't think they, they knew there were scholarships. Um, so maybe a uniquely Iowa experience, but just not a big soccer culture, and, and we didn't know about these things. So I think he really, as my high school coach, probably set me on the path that I, I, I'm on now. And... You know, high school coaches, since the, the, the club game becomes, you know, critical in that uh, recruiting process, and some of that is the recruiting rules set forth by the NCAA, but the high school coaches, I'm sure, very appreciative. I, I would have, you might even get a standing ovation if you said something positive about the high school experience because high school coaches sometimes get left a little behind. I think that's absolutely fair, and I can, I can only speak to my own experience. Um, not having played club soccer, I, I can't speak to that, but... What I can say is that my experience playing high school soccer was integral to my own career. I don't think I'm a GM right now if I hadn't had somebody that really exposed me to the game in that way and got me thinking about college and helped me consider that as a possibility and a process. I wanted to ask you one more thing because, uh, you know, looking through uh, what you've done and what you're currently doing outside of your GM duties, you're also a professor. <laughs> of sports business? Do yeah. I have that accurate? I mean, it I, I say 
adjunct instructor. I don't have okay. a doctorate, so I don't feel like I, I, I've earned the you professor have the glasses title. And I know you can, I look yeah. like a, a geeky professor. Um, <laughs> no disrespect to all the very very smart professors out there, but um, yeah, I'm an adjunct instructor uh, for an online sports business course at East Tennessee State University. So it's all virtual. I have a, a virtual classroom, and um, it's been really awesome to get to interact with uh, with college students, and it really keeps me grounded and connected to the next generation of our sports business professionals. It's really exciting to get to share my own experiences with them. Right, and I, I would imagine this uh, business background has uh, certainly aided in your uh, development of this uh, program with Sky Blue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a tendency to rattle off statistics. I read from textbooks sometimes, so I probably bore my staff a little bit sometimes with uh, some of that information. But um, no, it's been it's been an absolutely great experience, and I've done that for several years now, and hope to continue in that capacity. Sky Blue General Manager and online collegiate instructor Elise LaHue from Podcast Row at the United Soccer Coaches Convention. There was another person that sat with me who had closely monitored the draft as well. Yael Averbush, Executive Director, NWSLPA, last played professionally for Rain FC of the NWSL. This is a young lady who wins championships. Teams that she plays on, they do well. 2009 title at Sky Blue, 2011 championship Western New York, 2015 FC Kansas City title, two-time national champion at UNC, 26 caps national team, and now in this really significant role as the uh, growth of the game professionally here in the States continues. Yael, welcome. How are you? Well, thank you. you. You made me sound really good. Yeah. <laughs> You were, and oh, no, were. I just used the past wow. tense. I'm sorry. Well, I'm uh, offended. Well, techne football. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Uh, techne, but techne it's a, it's a Greek word. So, uh, I'm I'm not a I'm not 100 percent sure, but I, what I say is techne. Well, we'll go techne, and that's uh, you've got to follow the IL on Twitter and then get involved with uh, her program. Uh, there's a player on my club team. I want you to know that does uh, your technical training religiously, and I can see it help. What's her name? I'll see if I can find her on the leaderboard. Kernosh. Okay, yes. Yes. And I know the name. Okay. <laughs> so you'll have to... I kn- my most uh, consistent people training with Techni, I always know, I recognize their names, so I, I love it. I just heard uh, a description. Who made this description? They were talking about uh, uh, Gideon Zalelem, who has just been acquired by New York City FC, in fact, played in their exhibition opener last night, and it was Tab Ramos. And Zalelem has had some, uh, he's had some injury woes, and, and it's really, uh, you know, he's struggling in his career right now, trying to get back. Uh, and, but what it, it really struck me, and, and it makes me think of you, Tab Ramos called him the most technical player that he has ever coached. Now, I only had you one spring in ODP in New Jersey, but I, that's the one thing that really has always stood out. You are one of the most technical players that uh, I had ever coached or seen. So what, to what credit uh, did you, you know, attain this? And now you're actually promoting it and, and trying to uh, carry that on through, uh, through the youth. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I think, um, you know, I was really fortunate as a young player to have wonderful coaches and mentors uh, where I grew up in North Jersey. And I was just shown so many things that made me get obsessed with becoming a master of the ball and spending time and and keeping track of scores crossing them out on my paper on my wall and then trying again and and beating those scores and I think uh through that process I fell in love with the ball and I think 
especially as I went on in my career and realized how much in this game we can't control. So many things happen. There are all those ups and downs. But your technique is something you can always control as a player. You know, whether you're right and left foot or even whether you can strike the ball well with different surfaces, control the ball out of different, um, coming from all different directions. That's all stuff that you can train on your own and control. So I, for those reasons, have a really special connection with, um, with the ball and what I've done over the years to, uh, that I credit with allowing me to play at the highest level. So that's kind of what, what technique is. It's the embodiment of all that that I've tried to share with other players as well. But what, do, what techniques do you work on? What do you do with the ball? I mean, some, uh, we do a lot of wall ball with, with, the, with the team I uh, coach. You know, they work, require 2,000 touches a week, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, that's the exact thing. That's why you got to get the app. That's the app tells you right, what to yeah. do with the ball. Okay. So no, but it's uh, no, you know that's, that's a good question. That's what a lot of players always wonder. They say, well, "What things should I be doing?" And so in the app, uh, what I've tried to do is focus on things that players uh, don't need much equipment, don't need much space to do. So there is uh, some. There's a shooting training session in there. There's some more functional type training, but a lot of it are things like juggling, dribbling, and wall work, things that can be done in kind of small areas, especially, you know, coming from New Jersey in the winter. We have a living room training session. Literally, it's me barefoot in my parents' living room demonstrating. But these are all things that players can do, and there's... Um, I well, try to the remove, bottom of the, remove couch, the barriers. The bottom of the couch acks as a really good I know, uh, surface, but right? But parents get a little bit mad when you suggest that. So I, I just leave it up to the players to decide what they want to use as their rebounder. All right, Yael Averbush, our guest here on the Coaching Academy. So uh, talking about the specifics of technique, very important. But uh, you carry a, a very significant role now in the women's game. Uh, moving on from a, a professional career, I'd like to ask you about that, whether there's still something in there maybe uh, that you might make a return. Uh, uh, you were very um, transparent and open about uh, uh, ulcerative colitis, which really led to your demise as, as a professional athlete. And we, we've talked about it. My son has the, uh, the same affliction. But here you are, executive director, NWSL Players Association, and uh, the draft was today. So how did that go for you? Yeah, well, you know, it's, it was amazing because when I walked into the room, I actually felt really emotional because I remembered being drafted as a player in 2009, and I, I didn't go to the draft. I got a phone call, but I think it was maybe in, like, a little classroom somewhere. Like, I've seen pictures. It was not um, nowhere not near this. what it looked yeah. like today. And I walked into the room, and the lights and the setup, and the, it was a, you know, the seats were packed out, and I thought, you know what, wow, this is... Um, the energy here, this is really special. This is what it should be like for pro players entering the game. So it was... Um, it's a really special day, and you see the emotion on people's faces, the players and their parents and their coaches when they have now gotten the opportunity to live their childhood dreams. So it's pretty, it was a special, uh, special time today. Sounded like there were a couple of supporter sections from some of the clubs there, too. We, I, unless they were families, I, I, I couldn't really tell. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know the Spirit Squadron was, uh, was very present. And it made me feel good because I had to announce a couple of draft picks. So when I went up there, I was even getting some applause. So <laughs> I appreciated the supporters. All right. Well, give us a, uh, an update or maybe almost uh, maybe more of an introduction and then an update of uh, the NWSA, uh, NWSL Players Association. How long has it been in existence and, and what are the challenges uh, at, the, at the moment uh, for your group? Yeah, so the NWSL Players Association actually just became an official union last year. So um, a little over a year ago. But prior to that, some of the veteran players, including myself, I was an active player in the league at the time, we started to um, just create a good chain of communication among the players. So that's when our organization really started is can we 
um, have a couple player reps per team and really know what's going on at each of the clubs, be able to go to the league, uh, get questions answered. And that evolved slowly over time um, to the point where we are now, which is, you know, we, um, we work really hard to offer support to our players and to work alongside the league to continue to improve and professionalize the playing experience for our members. So what has, we're hearing a lot about uh, allocation dollars uh, have been added to, uh, well, the pot of money uh, that uh, clubs are, are permitted to uh, acquire players. So what impact do you suspect that will have? Yeah, I think, you know, this, uh, the, the most recent rule changes really allow for the clubs to spend more money to create uh, not only a better off-field experience, but a life experience for their players, but also to attract some of the best talent in the world. And that's what we want this league to be. Obviously, the, the number one goal of the league is sustainability. But at the same time, we need to be able to retain the best players who are here and attract uh, players from other leagues. And the, the way to do that now in the women's game is to be able to entice a player financially, which I think is really um, a really wonderful point in the women's game that we've reached the time where a uh, player can be, may, may choose a club based on a, a really impressive financial offer. So what's your assessment of the current ownership group of the, of the nine squads and their willingness to outlay the kind of money to uh, go after the top players in the world or keep the top players in the world? Because we did lose Sam Kerr to Chelsea, uh, but sometimes players want different experiences, but I suspect that was very much a money uh, thing. Yeah, you know, it's hard to know. Sam, I think... Um, probably wanted to play in Europe as well because she's been so dominant here and um, is so dominant for Australia. And I think the next frontier for her is to kind of prove her dominance elsewhere as well. So I don't know if that, how much that decision had to do with uh, the financial part, but I think it'll really... Because we've seen uh, uh, Carly and Heather and and, and Tobin and Alex Morgan, you know, all maybe give Europe a a shot for the experience factor. I think that was a big part of it. Exactly. I think there are a a number of really great, exciting clubs to play for in the women's game right now. So it's not all about the finances, but um, I can understand why a player would want to make sure they experience kind of different styles and um, perform well in different leagues. I, I think, you know, we'll really start to see this year how that allocation money plays out and which clubs, you know, really go for it and try to max out that that extra spending capability. I know you can see right away like a move um, like Rain FC's um, new relationship with Lyon, that's setting the stage for them to be able to really um, allocate some resources towards building up the team. So I think we'll see other teams doing doing the same in their own way. Now, can we get the league to actually give figures of allocation dollars that are traded and, uh, I mean, MLS does. I mean, MLS is not always transparent in their transactions, that's for certain. But we do, we do at least see the allocation dollars. Yeah, I think that's something that, that over time I do think the league will, will be more transparent with things like that. I Actually, I don't know why, um, why those things have been kept so secretive. Um, but it has been the case really through the history of women's soccer in this country is we don't talk the numbers. And I think that's something that... Uh, as a players association, we try to draw attention to is that what is the actual real life experience of these players? How much money are they actually making? You know, we talk about things that we want to improve, but what does it actually look like? And that takes um, some transparency. And, um, you know, I started to talk very openly about my own salary as a player towards the end of my time. But I think uh, the more 
the more we get comfortable talking about th- those things, the more we can actually assess how to make it better. Can you describe the relationship with U.S. soccer? Uh, one of the reasons the league has uh, sustained, I would think, is that U.S. soccer was paying the salaries of the allocated national team players. But that uh, is that allocation, is that now, has that disappeared? Has their support disappeared? The, that contract expired? And if that's the case, how is... Uh, how is the league going to take the next step without that? Yeah, so that that's still um, in effect. The um, the U.S. soccer will be paying the salaries of the U.S. women's national team allocated players at least through the end of their current CBA with U.S. soccer, which is, I think, um, at the end of 2021 that that okay. CBA will expire. So until then, um, that's, that is how it is, which has been hugely important, like you mentioned, to the league's um, ability to, to move forward and progress because um, we, can, we can keep these marquee players here, I mean, they're the best players in the world in our league, but the individual franchises don't have to um, you know, compete to be able to, to pay for them. Uh, so, so after that, that point when they will renegotiate with U.S. Soccer, I think then we'll see um, if and how that changes. But right now, um, U.S. Soccer is still responsible for some some part of managing the league. So it's not just the financial um, investment, but it's also some of the management. So there's a lot of support that's come from U.S. Soccer, and I think the goal, however, is to transition the league away from needing that support. So w- over the next, you know year or two, I think we'll see a shift in that, um, that management back towards the league. A couple of more questions. One is about the WNBA. Now, there's an, uh, there were a lot of figures, uh, you know, bullet point figures that were laid out, and I saw a lot of professional women's soccer players respond to that, like it, applaud it. And uh, what kind of impact does that have on what you're trying to accomplish uh, with the NWSLPA? Yeah, you know, I haven't, I haven't looked through uh, the WNBA uh, Players Association, the, the CBA, closely, but I did see the same thing you saw with the bullet point figures. And, um, you know, as somebody who made significantly less than that as a veteran pro player, I look and I, I think it's, it's phenomenal. And we always need people paving the way. You know, we have the U.S. Women's National Team who has has set the bar and continues to raise it and then to see um, women in other sports start to not just fight for um, fight for more and fight for what they deserve but actually make progress to achieve it um, you know it's definitely only the start but it's certainly it gives us a really positive feeling moving forward so maximum base salary will rise to two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars up from one hundred and seventeen five. Yeah, no, I did see. I, I saw. I just saw what how many uh, how many digits were in the numbers, and I was like, "Wow, that's nice." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, L. Averbush, our guest. Now, the other uh, thing is uh, Major League Soccer. Their current agreement expires on January the thirty first, so there are negotiations going on presently. I'm curious how closely you're looking at that, and what your relationship with their executive director Bob Foose is, and what what how he maybe has helped you. Yeah, so B- Bob Foose has been an amazing resource for us, a really integral part of our Players Association getting up off the ground and running. I literally, uh, when I was thinking, you know what, we need some type of organization here, we need a voice for the players, I was connected with Bob Foose and I said, Bob, you know, what are steps zero through three? Like, what do I do first? And he he walked us through the, the beginning of how, you know, how this works, how you get started, how you 
form an organization like that and eventually become a union. Uh, so we, we've worked very closely together, as well as with the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association. So I feel very fortunate to have had um, support of our, um, our peers, for lack of a better way of putting it, because, you know, I'm, I wouldn't have known what to do. This is all new to me, so I'm learning as I go. And are you watching it closely, how the players do in this uh, negotiation, I mean, they're, you know, they're at advanced stages. They're talking about charter flights and and uh, abolishing allocation money, which you guys are just starting to acquire. So it's a different animal. Yeah, a, di- a different world. But you know, it's interesting for us to watch their progression because it kind of um, it gives us a little bit of foreshadowing of you know the types of conversations that one day, hopefully, in women's soccer, we'll be having. So it's been it's great to learn learn from them because while they're you know much further ahead than we are, they also not too long ago, we're in the same place that we are now. So it's, it's very instructive for us to watch. The MLS Players Agreement will expire on January the 31st. Bo Dorr, he's a columnist, author, youth coach, and youth referee, a regular contributor to Soccer America. So this one here was impromptu. I just snagged him as he was moving around the convention center. Wanted to talk about his new book that has a rather interesting title. You have a book. You're going to have a book signing, I learned, in, in your chatting with people <laughs> as they were walking by. Why the U.S. men will never win the World Cup. Correct. That sounds so It's such a harsh title. But it's, <laughs> it's also got a little, like, hey, I need, to, I need to check this out and see what he's thinking. So uh, how about the title of it first? Is, uh, is, it a, is that a strong indication about what's going on in this book? Well, yes, I, I made the argument perhaps a little bit too well it's at one point in writing the book, I thought, oh my goodness, I've convinced myself of the uh, whole premise. Uh, and it's really, the subtitle is a historical and cultural reality check. Now, of course, I could have made that the title. It probably wouldn't have drawn got as much attention. So is the title a little bit sensationalist? Yeah, I guess so. But it's also, uh, it's meant as a, literally a reality check. And it's, it was prodded on by the 2018 pre- U.S. soccer presidential election in which people said, oh, if we just change this, if we just change this, then we're going to be world beaters. And I would think, well, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so uh, I said, well, it's complicated enough that I should probably write a book about it. And so I did. Well, there's a lot to feed off of that first answer. <laughs> the 2018 uh World Cup. You know, I have to tell you, the first thing that comes to mind now is something that was said recently by Jurgen Klinsmann, who mm-hmm. was dismissed along the way, where he said if he were the coach, not only would they have advanced to the World Cup, but he thinks he could have guided them to the semifinals, which I found <laughs> somewhat curious considering that I think he lost the team at Mopfrey Stadium where Columbus Crew called their home and where the U.S. men's national team is at a great home against Mexico, losing 2-1. And he threw under the bus not one, not two, but three players after the game. Michael Bradley, Jermaine Jones, and John Brooks. <laughs> and I know Brooks wasn't happy. No. So I think he may have lost the team that night, yet here he is claiming that he could have taken them to the semis. What was your uh, initial reaction when you read those comments? Quinsman is the prime example of the quick fix that people have fallen in love with. It was, uh, oh, let's just bring this coach in. Well, that coach is not going to change the talent pool. And, the, you know, the talent pool is still not up to speed with everyone else. You look at uh, Christian Pulisic and, you know, how much we invest in him. Other countries have several Christian Pulisics. That's why Christian Pulisic 
doesn't always get playing time uh, at Borussia Dortmund uh, or at Chelsea. He has to really fight for it. And yet he is by far the U best U.S. field player. Other countries, you know, England has a lot of players fighting for playing time at their at their respective clubs, including Chelsea, including Borussia Dortmund uh, right now. And so I think it's sort of just a mistake to think that one person can come in. There's no coach, no coach can come in and make the national team reach the semifinals. That is simply not going to happen. And that's something that people are a little bit delusional about. I think, if anything, the U.S. has probably overachieved in a lot of World Cups. Of course, reaching the quarterfinals in 2002 with a just a lot of people rounding in the shape at the right time. Reyna was healthy. O'Brien was healthy. Uh, Tony Santa was having a career year. And even then, they needed a little bit of luck to reach the quarterfinals with a very good team. Since then, they've reached the round of 16 several times. And that's good. That's And that's a reasonable goal. You know, I think that the U.S., you know, the name of the book is why the U.S. can never win, U.S. men will never win the World Cup. It's not why the U.S. men won't win in Cuba or Canada. And, you know, those are reasonable expectations that we should have, and those are things that maybe you can blame on one coach. But to say, oh, if I'd been coaching, we would have reached the semifinals, even if he hadn't lost the team, the team wasn't there. All right, Bo Dora, our guest, and, and again, his book, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. Let's Let's dig uh, a bit deeper into you know some of the particular things that led you to that conclusion. I mean, why not? Is it you know I, the the next thing I think of is is a is kind of a buzzword culture. You know, we don't we right. don't have the soccer culture. We have t too many other competing factors uh, as young people. I mean, there, there's a number of things. But what's what's your first response there? Well, the history and the culture are intertwined. Now there is a history component, there is a history chapter in the book. It is the heart of the book. It is the longest chapter. It's the one that has more than 100 citations. You know, this was not something I did just off the top of my head. This was a lot of going back, uh, checking results, checking, um, you know, anything that I thought I remembered. I went back and double checked and I dug through some interesting newspapers. I have a uh, clip of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch when they, um, found out that the U.S. Had, had beaten England in 1950, and that story is alongside the picture of a guy who looks a bit like Babe Ruth who caught a 45-pound fish. So that, you know, that tells you that, you know, yeah, there were people who have been interested in it over the years. And, you know, the, there were people, there are two ways to look at U.S. soccer history. There's the heroic version in which there are people who kept soccer alive against all odds, and then there's the version, well, why were those odds so long to begin with? And it goes back to what you and I were talking about a little bit before we came on air. In the 19th century, the colleges could have gone with soccer. They could have gone with rugby. And instead, they went with this weird sort of thing where they painted a bunch of lines on the field and invented the forward pass. And that became significantly bigger than soccer. So we play too many other sports. And then for a long time... Uh, you know, you've probably experienced this too. Being a soccer person was not hip. You know, you were picked on if you were a soccer person. People, I called it the yeah. uh, when I coached high school soccer in the '80s <laughs> at Ridge High and Basking Ridge. Uh, it was called the S word sometimes by fellow coaches. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it was dumped on. And when I was, yeah, when I was covering high school soccer and uh, well covering high school sports in general in the early 90s. You know, I had an athletic director just shake his head at me. Why are you out here for the soccer game? You know, it has no flow to it. It's not, and, and of course, then you had another S word where, you know, Jack Kemp called it uh, socialist and, you know, it was viewed as foreign. And part of it's because, you know, um, 
America has long had this identity crisis, and one of the books that has gone into this sort of thing in detail is Offside, Ameri uh, Soccer and American Exceptionalism, where they, the authors talk about uh, how culture really shaped us, how we wanted to establish our own identity around our own sports. Uh, football, of course, was one. Basketball was legitimately invented out of virtually nothing by James Naismith. That's one of the few sports where you can actually trace one moment where it was invented. Baseball came up with a myth uh, that this guy named Aber Abner Doubleday invented the sport out of thin air, when really it just sort of evolved from other sports, but that was how protective we were of establishing our own thing. Only recently has it become hip to be a soccer person, and that coincided with the fact that you can watch a lot of soccer on TV now, which is great for fans, it makes it difficult for MLS, which is one of the few sports leagues in the world that has to compete not only with other sports in its own country, but with uh, all these other leagues around the world that have a better product than MLS has. What is the aspect of, uh, and you talk about, you know, the Americans kind of want their own thing, but we are a diverse country. We have uh, all these different nationalities all these different young uh, boys and girls, but we'll focus on the boys because that's what we're talking about, the U.S. men's national team, who, uh, who have that culture in their family, who watch soccer, who go to the parks and play. So mm -hmm. what aspect of not uh, really uh, being in tune with that group of people plays a role in maybe your conclusion? Well, it's difficult to harness all of that energy. It's difficult to get scouts out to, uh, to identify and then develop all the talented players that we have. It's also difficult because we're an individualistic country. We tend to do things our own way. Uh, there was a great moment at this convention, uh, I think it may have been in Philadelphia a few years ago, uh, in which they had a couple people from the DFB in Germany on a stage, a very popular session, the auditorium was full, and someone asked the guy, well, what's the main difference that you see between U.S. soccer and German soccer. He said, in the U.S., you have all these different organizations uh, that claim to have the right answers. In Germany, and he held up one finger. It's the Federation. That's it. And, you know, that goes against what we stand for in the U.S., which is let's come up with our own ideas, and then when people uh, try to shut us down, we sue each other. And that came up pretty recently where the U.S. soccer budget was presented, and the the legal fees line item has gone up rather significantly. So it's, you have all these people, yes, and we're diverse, yes, and that could be a very good thing, yes, but then everybody disagrees and we waste a lot of energy fighting each other rather than coming together and putting out the best possible product. But isn't there the possibility that we could develop a leadership group that could take us to the promised land? Depends on how you define the promised land. I mean, could the promised well, land. Well, I'm going yeah. to win the World Cup. Your book is why we can't. Right. Well, how many countries have won the World Cup? I mean, it's. Well, that's uh, true. Yeah, Uruguay, Brazil, England, Argentina, Germany, France most recently. It's not many. Now, is. But we're America, man. We're we America. We make things happen. Well, <laughs> but one of the, I'm not sure one of the things. We make things happen, but that includes things like inventing our own sports and trying to take them global, you know, like the NFL and the NBA. It's not necessarily, hey, let's go be better than everyone else at this uh, foreign sport. I mean, you look at the Olympics and the sports that we're good at, they're things that everyone does. They're track and field, they're swimming. It's, you know, less so 
biathlon and ski jumping, those are you know sports that I love. Uh, they are those are foreign sports. We do our own thing, and we don't really care how the rest of the world sees us. So, yeah, I think we get everyone on the same page. We get good leadership. Then the reasonable goal could be that the U.S. is a top ten country, perhaps, and. You know, certainly never fails to qualify. I don't think they'll fail to qualify again in the near future, in part because they're going to 48 teams and in part because I think the U.S. Uh, will turn the corner on that. They, it was a bit of a fluke that the U.S. didn't qualify, but they didn't play well. It certainly didn't play up to the standards that we would like to see. Uh, so I think it's reasonable to say, look, we're going to get to the World Cup every time. We're going to get to the round of 16. Every once in a while we're going to make the quarterfinals. Every once in a while we're going to make the semifinals. But to be that team that goes all the way involves a level of having the sport embedded in the culture that we simply don't have, and it's hard to imagine that we ever will. Well, before we leave the book, <laughs> are there any aspects maybe that we've left out, you know, titillating, you know, something to inspire me to say, I'm buying this book <laughs> after this interview. So j just give us, a, give us a little bit more about what uh, is contained in this uh, this manifest, well, there's some Monty Python and South Park references, so that that'll help. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> I also, like that. Uh, there's also a is that the Long John Silver impersonators, perhaps, on the Monty Python side? No, uh, I actually had a couple of Monty Python references. I was told by an editor to cut it down to one, and the one that's uh, in there is um, from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, in which uh, they're in Swamp Castle, and the uh, the guy says, you know. You know, they said it was staffed to uh, b to build a castle in the swamp. Well, I did it anyway. That sank into the swamp. So I did it a second time. That sank into the swamp. Did it a third time. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. And the fourth one stayed up. And so the fourth one's Major League Soccer. And so, great, we have a castle. It's still in the swamp. Uh, and, you know, it's still not prime real estate in, in terms of soccer. Uh, but the other, there's one chapter in it. And this is the one that has sort of the fewest citations. There are a, a lot of this, ha, I mean, the, again, the history chapter has 100 citations. Uh, there are other things where I go through TV ratings and so forth. The one that was more of a personal observation is that we in the U.S. are too serious about this. This is a sport that's built on joy. When we think of Brazil, you think of Jogo Benito. You think of the old ad where they're kicking the ball around in the airport. You know, Jenga. Jenga. Yeah. That's right. It's supposed to be fun. And this is something where you know any you walk around the world and toss a soccer ball out to a five-year-old, and you know it's the greatest. I used to tell my um, the youth soccer teams that I coached, I would hold a ball behind my back and say, I have behind my back, you know, the greatest toy that any kid in the world would be happy to receive. And they go, what? And I, I turn around, it's a soccer ball, and they look at me like, what? Yeah, they don't realize, uh, because you know, here it's, oh, well, you're a good soccer player. We need to herd you into this. You're gonna have to drive uh, 100 miles, 200 miles to play a game. Your parents are gonna have to spend a ton of money, and that's what we do. And the rest of the world, it's, it's fun. It is, and I think that's one reason why the women's team has succeeded. There is a chapter about whether the women's team is going to continue to be successful or whether some of the same issues will catch up to the women. I think in that case, the U.S. will always be a contender. Uh, you can't expect them to continue to win championships, every, and you've seen the results in our youth national teams on the women's side. They're not, certainly not as good as they used to be. 
So some of those same issues are going to catch up uh, on the on the women's side, and you know on the men's side, we fell behind. You know every other country in the world has a head start on us. In women's soccer, we had the head start. It's only going to last for so long because the rest of the world will be there. And on men's in men's soccer, it's kind of like a marathon where the finish line keeps going farther away. It, with the U.S. national team of 2000, 2019 or 2020 beat the U.S. national team of 1990 that qualified for the World Cup? Probably. Um, but would the French national team of 2020 uh, beat the French national team of 1990? Sure. So, um, but one thing I keep telling your, your serious that same colleague, uh, Jason Davis, who keeps saying, oh, this is so dreary. This is so dreary. No, it's, it's a fun book because... You know, again, the Monty Python reference, I guess I do have two Monty Python references in the book because I talk about how you know, being the fan of the underdog can be rewarding because then you start to treasure everyone. You think of a, like a third-tier third club in England and how they treasure that FA Cup win over Manchester United they right. had once. Uh, in the U.S., we can treasure beating Mexico in the 2002 World Cup and several other times, but most notably in the 2002 World Cup. We can treasure that in 2009, Spain came in with this epic winning streak in the Confederations Cup, and we beat them, uh, and, and deservedly so. It was a fantastic performance. So we get to treasure those, and when things aren't going so well, well, in the English terraces, they sing, always look on the bright side of life. That's what we need. To, that's the mindset we need to have to be to get through the bad times and really appreciate the good times because we forget what an accomplishment it was to win those games that we have. We are on the floor of the uh, convention center at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. I guess we're in the Baltimore Convention Center uh, downtown. Bo Door talking about his book, Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. I assume that's available. Amazon.com and uh, the uh, the typical sources or not? Tell us yeah. uh, what's the best way to, to buy this thing. Uh, you can go to Amazon. You can go to directly to the publisher, uh, Roman.com. It's R-O-W-M-A-N, like Roman.com. It's Roman and Littlefield. Uh, you can, I mean, Barnes & Noble, um, everywhere else that... Everywhere you can get electronic nice. books, it should be available. So if you are a, if you prefer to be a Kindle reader or a Nook reader or an Apple reader, you can get it that way as well. So the one place it's not really available is in your local bookstore um, because, well, unfortunately, local bookstores are falling on hard times. Although I am excited to do a signing this afternoon at a book and record store just down the street from here. Uh, but yes, yeah, so you can certainly order it online. A book and record store. Book and record come. store. I like records, man. I'm going to Yeah, come. records have made such a... Would you have ever have guessed that people would be buying more records than CDs today? So, <laughs> And there are people who, who want to buy print books instead of electronic books, and good news is uh, you can get that. But I also want to yeah. read newspapers, and this is, uh, this is a terrible time for me, I have to say. I love newspapers, Bo. Uh, yeah, well, I spent a better part of my working life at newspapers, and yeah, I, I miss the serendipity of uh, being able to... Um, flip through a newspaper and just see what was in there and I miss the serendipity of a bookstore I don't hang out in bookstores as much as I used to um, but the good news is that we can be on something like this and uh, I can tell you about this book that you might not have seen on the, on the shelves of your local bookstore and uh, you can find it rather easily and have it in your door in two days. Now, you, uh, before you leave, uh, you're also a columnist for Soccer America, which is really the Bible of uh, soccer information those boys uh, continue yep. to do an unbelievable job Paul Kennedy, Mike Wataya. They really do. Uh, the 
you wrote something not too long ago, and with the the video assistant referee uh, debated uh, an infinitum uh, these days, especially with what's going on in the premiership. But it wasn't always accepted well in uh, Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Major League Soccer looks kind of good now because they're, they're considered like the uh, the league that's doing it right, you know, yeah. compared to the, the Premier Premiership. Yeah. But you wrote something, and I don't have it in front of me. Was it cricket? You wrote that uh, there's a sport that does it better than any other. Was it cricket? Yeah. And, and, and explain it and, and how that could help us on the soccer side. Well, it actually shows what we can and can't do because cricket has – uh, fairly significant video review. They simply go up to a video umpire who looks at all these different things and then uh, says to the umpire, okay, here's what happened. And the call goes up when there's something that they can't see. So it, they don't have this stigma of saying, oh, well, you just took authority away from someone. No. Uh, in cricket, for one thing, they're looking at objective things, and you can break it down fairly easily for the most part. I mean, what they'll have uh, – the toughest call in cricket is what they call leg before wicket. You know, if the ball hits the batter's leg and the leg is blocking the wicket, then that batter is out. They, they have the technology to look at the flight of the ball to see whether it was on track to hit the wicket. Uh, look at it from a couple of different angles. They also have a sonic thing that tells whether there was contact with the bat because it makes contact with the bat, then it's, then it's okay. They have the technology to look at all these things, and then they can tell the umpire, okay, no contact with the bat. The ball was on target for the wicket. Uh, You need to call him out, and he does. Now, in soccer, we think we can do that with something like offside. We can't. Uh, because we can't have uh, sonar to uh, (laughs) to, uh, describe when the ball, the exact moment the ball is struck. Right, yeah, I'm just yeah. asking. Sure. I mean, there are too many moving moving pieces to it uh, because, yeah. you know, the sonar in cricket works because it's did it hit the bat or not. It's It doesn't matter if it happened in this millisecond or this millisecond. If it happened at all, then that changes the call. In offside, the, I maintain that the assistant referee is better placed than the video assistant referee to tell when the ball was struck because the assistant referee, depending on how loud the stadium is, but the assistant referee can often hear the ball being struck and then it's going to be a tight call and you're going to have to make a judgment and you can draw these little lines and say well you know here's where this person's fingernail was ahead of this other person's toenail and say well then he's offside but then you really don't know when the ball was struck yeah there are too many other moving pieces to that so that affects the call so that what what do we learn from cricket and their use of it what we learned from cricket is that it's okay to go upstairs and get uh, get a view that you don't have on the field, and but you know, we do that. We do. Uh, we just mess around with it, and then we sometimes call the ref over to take a look when there's no need because the ref didn't see it in the or because or because it's we sometimes call the ref over things that aren't judgment calls. Soccer is always going to have judgment calls. You know, if I bump into you, uh, was it hard enough? that the referee should call a foul. That's always going to be a judgment call. It might depend on the atmosphere of the game. Uh, it might depend on you know, the age of the players. It might depend on the size of the players. You can't just look at it and say in black and white, this is or isn't a foul. The, I mean, the one place that soccer does use technology well is goal line technology because that's that, like the ball hitting the wicket or hitting the leg in, in cricket, is a yes, or no, it's a yes or no decision. Yeah. Right. And so in 
in soccer, we think we have the precision where we really don't. And then we don't give enough power to the video. Really, the key words to video assistant referee are assistant referee. Now, I'm, I'm a referee now, uh, not at a high level, because I'm not in shape to do that. and don't have the experience to do that anyway. But uh, when I'm an assistant referee, if I see something that the ref didn't see, I wave my flag. That's what a video assistant referee should be. It's, hey, you know, I saw this. And then you may talk with the referee for a second. Well, you know, the referee may say, no, I actually had a good view of that and decided not to call a foul. Or the referee might say, yeah, thanks, I didn't see that. That's what a video assistant referee should be. But it, you're suggesting yeah. that the referee shouldn't go to the monitor necessarily. Not at all? Not or, that, no. Because that's, yeah. that's the big... Uh, that's the big discussion point uh, in the EPL is that uh, the referees aren't going to the monitor at all. And the right. the people that are proponents of the referee going to the monitor, I think more than anything, they're responsible ultimately for the call, but they have a, they're on the field, so they have a feel right. for what just happened. Yeah, so if it's a judgment call, the referee needs to go over and take a look. And believe me, there are times when I've been refing, uh, I was refing U19 girls on a wet, cold day, and then all of a sudden, the ball came in, and boom, four bodies went flying in different directions. And I had one of the coaches, who was actually a friend of mine, yelling, you got to bow, you got to call that. And I'm still trying to process it in my head. And then his goalkeeper came up with the ball, and one of his players came up and said, why don't you call that? And I said, advantage. The truth is, I would have loved to have had another look at that because in real time, at the angle that I had, I had no idea whether it was a foul. And so, yeah, sometimes you do want to call the ref over if it's going to be a judgment call. Now, of course, there are some things, they say mistaken identity is one of the things. Like if you give a red card to the wrong person, that's something the video assistant referee should just say, hey, no, that's what happened. Or if it's simply that something that happened behind the ref's back, you know, maybe you just tell him what happened. Um, so it's something that I think it will get better over time. I mean, it's gotten better in football, American football, although they occasionally tinker with it. They started reviewing pass interference calls, and the referees basically decided you're not going to tell me <laughs> what a pass interference call is. Uh, so, but it does work. In, it works on possession. It works on whether someone's knee was down. You eventually will get a handle on what calls are good to go to VAR and what calls are not. All right, his book is Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. He's Bo Dour. Go buy the book. We're here at the convention. Uh, podcast row for On Frame this week. <laughs> Bo, thank you so much. Good luck with the book, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks very much. So that's it from Podcast Row. Privilege that On Frame was included with an ever-growing group of soccer podcasts. On our next episode, my first conversation with Ronnie Dyla, the fourth New York City FC head coach, as he prepares for his first competition in the CONCACAF Champions League. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.